Section 11 of Tongues of Conscience by Robert Hitchens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Lisa Reichert. The Cry of the Child, Part 1, The Dead Child. The peasants going homeward at evening, when the last sunbeams slanted over the mountains and struck the ruffled surface of the river, did not hear the cry. The children picking violets and primroses in the hedgerow by the small white house did not hear it. The occasional tourists who trudged sturdily onward to the rugged pass at the head of the valley did not hear it. Only Maurice Dale heard it, and grew white and shivered. Even to him it had been at first as faint as an echo pulsing through a dream. He had said to himself that it was a fancy of his brain, and then he had pulled himself together and listened. And again, as if from very far off, the little cry had stolen to his ear and faded away. Then he had said to himself that it was the night wind caught in some cranny of the house and striving to get free. He had thrown open his window and leaned out and trembled when he found that the hot night was breathless, airless, that no leaf danced in the elm that shaded his study, that the ivy climbing beneath the sill did not stir as he gazed down at it with straining eyes. It was not the cry of the wind, then, yet it must be, or if not that it must be some voice of nature. But the river had no such thrill of pain, of reproach in its song. Then he thought it was some night-bird haunting the eaves of his cottage, or the tangle of wood the country people called his garden. And he put on his clothes eagerly, descended the narrow staircase, and let himself out onto the path that curved to the white gate but in the garden there was no sound of birds. This was a year ago. Maurice remembered very well his long vigil in the garden, and how he had prayed that he might hear one note, one only, of a night-jar, or the hoot of an owl in the forest, so that the black thought just born in his mind might be strangled, and the shadow driven out of his heart. But his prayer had not been granted, and he knew he had not deserved that it should be. Towards dawn he went back into his house again, and on the threshold, just as a pallor glimmered up as if out of the grass at his feet, he heard the cry again, and he knew that it came from within the house. Then the sweat stood on his forehead, and he said to himself, with pale lips, It is the cry of the child. All the people of Brayfield-by-the-Sea were agreed on one point. The new doctor, Maurice Dale, young as he looked, was clever. He had done wonders for Mrs. Bird, the rich old lady at Ocean View. He had performed a quite brilliant amputation on Tommy Lynn, the poor little boy who had been run down by a demon bicyclist. And then he was well born. It got about that his father was an honourable, and all the young ladies of Brayfield trembled at the thought that he was a bachelor. His looks were also in his favour. Maurice was pale and tall, with black smooth hair parted in the middle, regular features and large black eyes. The expression he assumed suited him. It was curiously sad. But at first this apparent pathos was a great success in Brayfield. It was only at a later period that it was the cause of unkind tittle-tattle. In the beginning of Maurice's residence at Brayfield, eulogy attended it and applause was never far off. People said that Maurice was impressionable, and that the vision of pain upon which the medical student's eyes must look so closely had robbed him of the natural buoyancy of youth. 
Poor young man, they thought enthusiastically. He suffers with those who suffer. And this was considered, and rightly considered, a very touching trait in Maurice. Brayfield was well satisfied with its new doctor, and set itself to be ill for his benefit with a fine perseverance. But as time went on, the satisfaction of Brayfield became mingled with curiosity. The new doctor was almost too melancholy. It would not be true to say that he never smiled, but his smile was even sadder than his gravity. There was a chill in it, as there is a chill in the first light of dawn. One or two particularly impressionable people declared that it frightened them, that it was uncanny. This idea once started, developed. It went from house to house, and so gradually a spirit of whispering awe arose in the little town, and the vision of human pain ceased to be altogether accountable for the pale sorrow of the young doctor. It was decided that his habitual depression must take its rise from some more personal cause, and upon this decision gossip naturally ran a wild course, since nobody knew anything about Maurice Dale, except that his father was an honourable. Rumour had plenty of elbow-room. It took advantage of the situation, and Maurice was more talked about than anybody in Brayfield. And Lily Alston, the daughter of Canon Alston, rector of Brayfield, launched out into surmises which, however, she kept to herself. Lily at this time was a curious mixture of romance and religion, of flightiness and faith. She read French novels all night, and went to early service in the morning. She studied Swinburne, and taught in the Sunday school, with almost equal ardour, and did her duty, and pursued a thousand things outside her duty, with such enthusiasm that she was continually knocked up. On these continual occasions, Maurice Dale was invariably sent for, and so an intimacy grew up between him and the rectory, which contained the canon, his daughter, and the servants. For Mrs. Alston was dead, and Lily was an only child. Real intimacy with a rectory means, above all things, Sunday suppers after evening church, and in time it became an unalterable custom for Maurice Dale to spend the twilight of his Sabbaths with the canon and his daughter. The canon, who was intellectual and desolate, despite his daughter since his wife's death, liked to talk with Maurice, and Lily, without having fallen in love with the young doctor, thought him, as she said to herself, a wonderfully interesting study. Lily's wild surmises, already alluded to, were born on one of these Sabbath evenings in winter, when she, the canon, and Maurice were gathered round the fire after supper. The sea could be heard, rolling upon the pebbly beach at a distance, and the wind played about the skirts of the darkness. The canon, happily at ease after his hard day's work, rested in his red armchair, puffing at his well-seasoned pipe. Lily was lying on a big old-fashioned sofa, drawn before the flames, a Persian cat, grave in its cloud of fur, nestling against her and singing its song of comfort. Maurice Dale sat upright, pulling at a cigar. It chanced that Lily had been away the week before, paying a visit in London, and naturally the conversation turned idly upon her doings. "'I used to love London,' the canon said with a half-sigh. "'In the old days, when I shocked one or two good people here, Lily, by taking your mother to the playhouses. Somehow I don't care for these modern plays. I don't think she would have liked them.' 
I love London, too, Lily said in her enthusiastic voice. But I think modern plays are intensely interesting, especially Ibsen's. They're cruel, the canon said. Yes, father, but not more cruel than some of the older pieces. Such as? I was thinking of The Bells. I saw Irving in it on Friday for the first time. You've seen it, of course, Mr. Dale? Maurice, who had been gazing into the fire, looked up. His lips tightened for a moment, then he said, No, never. What, though you lived in London all those years when you were a medical student? I had opportunities of seeing it, of course, but somehow I never took them, and I dislike the subject of the play greatly now. There was a certain vehemence in his voice. Why? the canon asked. I remember my wife was very fond of it. I think it morbid and dangerous. There are troubles enough in life without adding to them such a hateful notion as a, a haunting, a horrible thing that, he looked round with a sort of questioning gaze in his dark eyes, that must be an impossibility. I don't know, the canon said, without observing the glance. I don't know. A sin may well haunt a man. Perhaps, but only as a memory, not as a jingle of bells, not as a definite noise, like a noise a man may hear in the street any day. That must be impossible. Now, don't you say so? Lily, on her sofa, had noticed the very peculiar excitement of the young doctor's manner, and that his denial was really delivered in the form of an ardent interrogation. But the canon's mind was not so alert after the strain of pulpit oratory. He was calmly unaware of any personal thrill in the discussion. "'I would not be sure,' he said. "'God may have what men would call supernatural ways of punishment, as well as natural ones.' "'I decline to believe in the supernatural,' Maurice said rather harshly. "'Granted that these bells might ring in a man's mind, so that he believed that his ears actually heard them, that would be just as bad for him.' "'Then I suppose he is a madman,' Lily said. Maurice started round in his chair. "'That's a rather shocking presumption, isn't it?' he exclaimed. "'Well,' the canon said, knocking the ashes slowly out of his pipe, "'if you exclude the supernatural in such a case, and come upon the natural, I must say I think Lily is not far wrong. The man who hears perpetually a non-existent sound, connected with some incident of his past,' will at any rate soon be on the highway to insanity, I fancy. Maurice said nothing for a moment, but Lily noticed that he looked deeply disturbed. His lips were pressed together, his eyes shone with excitement, and his pale forehead frowned. In the short silence that followed on the canon's remark, he seemed to be thinking steadfastly. At last he lifted up his head with a jerk and said, a man may have a strong imagination without being a madman, Canon. He may choose to translate a mere memory into a sound companion, just as men often choose to play with their fancies in various ways. He may elect to say to himself, I remember vividly the cry of... He stopped abruptly, then went on hastily. The sound of bells. My mind hears them. Let me, for my amusement... Push on my imagination a step further and see what will happen. Hark! It's done. My ears can hear now what a moment ago only my mind could hear. Yes, my ears hear it now. He spoke with such conviction, and the gesture which he linked with his words was so dramatic 
that Lily pushed herself up on the pillows of the sofa, and even the canon involuntarily assumed an attitude of keen attention. "'Why, Dale,' the latter said after a moment, "'you should have been an actor, not a doctor. Really, you led me to anticipate bells, and I only hear the wind. Lily, didn't you feel as I did, eh?' Lily had gone a little pale. She looked across at Maurice. "'I don't know that I expected to hear bells, father,' she said slowly. As she said those words, Maurice Dale, for the first time, felt as if a human being drew very near to his secret. Lily's glance at him asked him a question. "'What was it that pierced through the wind so faintly?' it seemed to say. "'What then?' the canon asked. "'I don't know,' she replied. Maurice got up. "'I must go now,' he said. The canon protested. It was early. They must have one more smoke. But Maurice could not be induced to stay. As he walked rapidly homeward in the darkness, he told himself again and again that he was a fool. How could it be? How could she hear the cry? The cry of the child. That night Lily did not read a French novel. She lay awake. Her fancy was set on fire by the evening's talk. Her girlish imagination was kindled. In those dark and silent hours she first began to weave a web of romance round Maurice, to see him set in a cloud of looming tragedy. He looked more beautiful to her in this cloud than he had looked before. Lily thought it might be wicked, but somehow she could not help loving mental suffering in others, and the face of Maurice gazed at her in the blackness beneath a shadowy crown of thorns. Next day, at the early service, she was inattentive to the ministrations of religion. Her father seemed a puppet at his prayers, the choir a row of surplus dolls, the organ an empty voice. Only at the end, when silence fell on the kneeling worshippers, did she wake with a start of contrition to the knowledge of her impiety, and blush between her little hands at her concentration upon the suspected sorrow of the young doctor. But in that night and that morning Lily ran forward towards Maurice, set her feet upon the line that divides men from women. She knew that she had done so only when she next encountered him. Then, as their eyes met, she was seized with a painful idea of guilt, bred by an absurd feeling that he could see into her mind and know how all her thoughts had been crowding about him. It is a dangerous symptom, that sensation of one's mind being visible to another, as a thing observed through glass. Lily did not understand her danger, but she was full of a turmoil of uneasiness. Maurice noticed it, and felt conscious also, as if some secret understanding existed between him and Lily. Yet there was none. There could be none. In conclave, the individually stupid can sometimes almost touch cleverness. Brayfield only began to talk steadily about Lily and the young doctor from the day of this meeting of self-consciousnesses, which had, as it chanced, taken place on the pavement of the curved parade by the sea. Till that day the little town had attributed to Maurice hopelessness, to Lily simply friendship for a sad young man. Now its members talked the usual gossip that attends the flirtations of the sincere, but added to it a considerable divergence of opinions as to the likelihood of Maurice's conversion from despair. Lily, they were all decided, began to love Maurice. 
but some believed and some denied that maurice began to love lily this would have been hard for lily had she noticed it but her fanciful and enthusiastic mind was concentrated on one thing only and her range of vision was consequently narrowed she was incessantly engaged in trying to trace the footsteps of the doctor's misery of which she was now fully convinced and indeed since the sabbath evening already described maurice had scarcely endeavoured to play any part of ordinary happiness to her her partial penetration of his secret quickly brought a sense of relief to him there was something consoling in the idea that this little girl divined his loneliness of soul if not its reason by degrees they grew quietly so accustomed to the silent familiarity existing between their ebbing and flowing thoughts they were without a word spoken so thoroughly certain of the language their minds were uttering to each other that when their lips did speak at length the words that came were like a continuance of an already long conversation lily was once more knocked up and the canon called in maurice to prescribe he arrived in the late afternoon and was taken by the canon into lily's little sitting-room where she lay on a couch by the fire a small shaded reading lamp defined the shadows craftily now dale the canon said for goodness sake tell her to be more orderly and to do less mind and body she behaves as if life was a whirlpool she swims stupendously tell her to float and give her a tonic and he went out of the room shaking his head at the culprit on the couch when the door had shut upon him maurice came up to the fire in silence and looked at lily she smiled at him rather hopelessly and then suddenly she said poor dear father to ask you to make me take life so easily that remark was the first onward gliding of their minds in speech the uttered continuance of the hitherto silent colloquy between them maurice sat down he accepted the irony of the situation suggested by the canon without attempt at a protest life can never be easy if one thinks he said then trying to adopt the medical tone he added but you think too much i have often felt that lately yes she said her eyes were bent on him with a scrutiny that was nearly ungirlish maurice tried not to see it as he put his fingers on her wrist she added i have felt that about you too maurice had taken out his watch without speaking he timed the fluttering pulsation of her life then dropping her hand and returning the watch to his pocket your too eager thoughts were of me he asked yes but yours were not of me not always he said with an honesty that pleased her and again lily saw above his face the shadowy crown of thorns she was really unwell and ready to be unstrung perhaps this made her say hastily as she shifted lower on her cushions i'm partly ill to-day because you let me see how terribly you are suffering yes maurice said heavily i let you see it why is that there was nothing like a shock to either of them in the directness of their words they seemed spoken rightly at the inevitable time no thought of question of denial was entertained by them maurice sat there by her and dropped his mask utterly miss alston i am a haunted man he said and in a moment as he spoke he seemed to be old lily said nothing she twisted between her little fingers the thin rug that covered her and was angry with herself because 
all of a sudden she wanted to cry. And I am beginning to wonder, Maurice went on, how much longer I can bear it, just how long. Lily cleared her throat. It struck her as odd that she did not feel strange with this man who looked so old in the thin light from the lamp. Indeed, now that the mask had entirely fallen from him, he seemed more familiar to her than ever before. I suppose we must bear everything so long as God chooses, she said. No, so long as we choose. But how? To live to bear it. I cannot be haunted after I am dead. That can't be. He lifted his head and looked at her with a sort of pale defiance, as if he would dare her to contradict him. Lily confronted the horror of his eyes, and a shudder ran over her. The thorns had pierced more deeply even than she had believed, as she lay awake in the night. Just then a door banged and a footstep approached on the landing. "'Hush, it's father,' Lily whispered. And the canon entered to ask the condition of the patient. Maurice prescribed and went away. In the windy evening, as he walked, he was conscious of a large change dawning over his life. Either the spirit of prophecy, which comes to many men even in modern days, was upon him, or hope, which he believed quite dead in him, stirred faintly in his dream. In either event he saw that on the black walk of his life there was the irregular and as yet paltry line of some writing, some inscription. He could not read the words, he only knew that there were some words to be read, and one of them was surely Lily's name. End of section 11